continue our series in the book of Jeremiah today. But in this case, we're actually going to back up. Last week, we considered chapters 30 to 33. I would like for us this morning to direct our attention to chapter 31, Jeremiah 31. We shall read there, and then we shall also read in the book of Hebrews, the 8th chapter. So Jeremiah 31, beginning at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the lord for i will forgive their iniquity and i will remember their sin no more now hebrews the eighth chapter beginning at verse one now the point in what we are saying is this We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, now this is going to sound very familiar, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord." 
for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. And now, Father, we ask that by your Spirit, this word bear fruit now. May it bring the fruit of repentance, of faith, of joy, of peace, of gentleness. May it bring assurance to our hearts. May we hear this, your word, and hear it well today. Is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Bear in mind, as we work through this together this morning, the relationship between the Mosaic law, the Christian, the place of Israel, and Christian ethics have all been matters of discussion, debate, and disagreement for hundreds of years. The discussion is not one that demarcates the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. Rather, it's how we interpret certain parts of Scripture. Now, we have just read in both Jeremiah and Hebrews, which is our central consideration today, what is Jeremiah, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, as God has spoken and revealed to him this concept of a new covenant, what is it that Jeremiah is saying? What is it that the Lord is saying in Jeremiah 31? And how do we lay hold of that rightly and understand it in light of the further revelation in the New Testament letters and Gospels, the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. As we do this, I'd have you consider some other things as we go along here, some other texts. You're welcome to write these down. Exodus 24, 8, Moses took the covenant, excuse me, took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Mark 14:24 Jesus speaking and he said to them this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many Luke 22:20 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood The apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians the 11th chapter recording very much the same words. Though he was not there, he received this as part of the common teaching tradition of the church. In the same way, also he took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Further, in 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, Paul writing in verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new 
covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The same book of Hebrews, the ninth chapter, the 15th verse, speaking of Jesus. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Hebrews 12, what we read in the responsive reading this morning, that glorious promise the contrast at verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It would appear that the terms new covenant might be of some importance. Over and over again, I have seen this in the role of being a shepherd, caring for people's souls. I, I find, you know, unbelievers and even believers spend so much time and energy on questions that the text actually answers. How can I please God? How can God ever forgive me? I've messed up again. Why should the Lord receive me? The Lord must be more tired of my failures than I am, and I'm exhausted. What if I keep failing? I'll keep trying, but man, I am so tired. All of this has its roots in a misunderstanding a deep misunderstanding of the realities of what it means to be under the new covenant. What I'm saying to you children is some of you miserable this morning and you don't need to be. In fact, you ought not. Now, some of you are miserable and you ought to be because you're not Christian. Let me not be misleading here. If you don't know Jesus, you ought to be miserable. Now I know you said, well, you're wishing that on me? You bet. I'd pray for it. Because you need to realize you're estranged from God and your only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation in Him alone. So I, yeah, I pray for lost people to get miserable if it'll lead them to Jesus. This is of such import that when we as the elders were looking at articulating a confession of faith, we even included a separate article on the new covenant. Here's what we said. I, by the way, this wasn't original. Somebody else wrote this. We edited it a little bit to make it nicer. 
it needed a little help. But overall, this is so good. We believe the new covenant has been established through the redemptive work of Christ, the blessings of which are only received by grace through faith, and that Christ has fulfilled the old covenant, thereby making it obsolete. Just read that in Hebrews 8. God's final words of revelation given through Christ and his New Testament apostles and prophets are the interpretive lens through which the Old Testament must be understood and applied. The understanding of the new covenant gives us a better way of viewing salvation, the church, and the matter of ethics as Christians. Now, for those of you who are the theology geeks out there, and you know who you are, if you're wondering where to put this, typically within evangelical circles, those who think hard about the matter of interpretation of Scripture tend to land on one of two ends of a scale in interpreting God, Israel, Jesus, the church, and how all this stuff works together. It is not purely about eschatology, though it is involved. It's honestly about how God deals with his people. So typically this has shown up in one of two schools of thought, if you will. Covenant theology and dispensationalism. I know some of you are so excited at the thought of a theological lecture, you're almost beside yourself. So stop it, you're annoying people around you, okay? Sit still. Some of you are planning a nap at the very moment. I'm going to do this quickly. Covenant theology is what you find within classic Reformed Presbyterianism. You would find it among folks that we would admire, such as R.C. Sproul and Legan Duncan. We would look at that and say, yea, verily, they are our brothers in Christ, and this is their understanding. The other side is what is called classically dispensationalism. And if you're wondering about that, I have to do no more than say John MacArthur, and some of you just automatically genuflect it. I know what happened there. You didn't do it outwardly, but I saw what happened. Your eyes glaze over a little bit. Now, what we're advocating this morning is actually between those two. It's typically called either New Covenant Theology or Progressive Covenantalism. The words are all, not all that important, the terms. What I'm trying to determine for your help you follow, my friends, is what does it mean when the Scripture talks about us as believers being under a new covenant? And again, this is a place where there can be disagreement. All right? Not everything's an A-list, fall-on-your-sword, die-over issue. Not every mistake is going to send you to eternal damnation. Presbyterians are wrong on baptism. I still expect lots of Presbyterians in heaven. Okay? I, I think dispensationalists have got it entirely wrong on the issue of Israel and the church, but I fully expect to find them in heaven as well. Now, I will say I'm not sure how many of them expect to find me there, but I expect to find them there. <laughs> I still believe that it was uh, 
I think it was Newton who said the three great surprises when he gets to heaven. The ones that he thought would be there who won't be. The ones he thought wouldn't be there who will be. And the greatest surprise of all, himself. Amen. When we don't understand the relationship of the Old and New Covenants, we really don't understand Christ. The Lord's painful faithfulness. Remember, that's what we titled this series on Jeremiah. The Lord's painful faithfulness finds its final fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ and the execution of the New Covenant. So here's the consideration. Now, some of you are thinking, is this really a huge subject? You bet. I'm hitting high points here. There's so much more to dig into. One day we may do that. I'm almost old enough, I think, to pull that off. Not quite. Close. First, consider this. And we're looking at this now from the perspective of Hebrews 8, looking back. First, the superiority of Christ's priesthood. Now remember, the author of Hebrews is writing because there were a group of Jewish Christians who were struggling to maintain faithfulness in being Christian. And we get it if you do any study at all about what it cost for them to become Christian. It is really no wonder that they were thinking about turning their backs on it. For them to believe in Jesus as the Messiah was so offensive in the first century culture that oftentimes the family would have a funeral. They considered them dead. They'd been cut off from their family. They'd been cut off from the family business. You know, our era where you grow up and decide what you want to be when you grow up, and you you understand that until the last hundred or so years, or maybe 200 at most, nobody was ever asked that question. What do you want to be when you grow up? It was assumed you would be whatever your daddy was and whatever your granddaddy had been. That's what you were. They lost all that. Some of them were cast out of synagogues, the places they'd worshipped. Temple worship. If anybody knew what they were, it was closed to them. The author of Hebrews, whoever that wondrous disciple was, brought in these ideas. You're looking back. Quit looking back. Jesus is better than anything you had before. He's better than all of it put together. And part of that is Jesus is better than the priesthood. In fact, he is a priest. The superiority of his priesthood, superior in character. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Our high priest is seated in heaven. I remind you that the tabernacle, the movable worship center, and the temple, the one constructed out of stone and was so glorious, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world when Solomon completed it. 
Of all the furnishings within either of those, the one thing you don't find is a seat. Because the priests who worked from dawn to dusk never got done. There was no sitting because there was no resting, because people were constantly bringing sacrifices for their sins. Animals beyond number, blood beyond measure, smoke all the time rising from the altar. And yet Jesus is done. How's he done? Well, can I have you look forward just a little there in Hebrews? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What he has done is enough superior in character. Jesus is the reigning, ruling priest king who exercises authority as the messianic king. The words in verse 1, majesty in the heavens, points to God's awesomeness, to his transcendence. Since Jesus sits at the right hand of one who is so great, he also exercises the same transcendent power. The reference there to the true tent doesn't mean there's actually a tent pitched in heaven the language is analogical. The true tabernacle is the presence of God, the place where God reigns and rules, and the great high priest is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Bear this in mind, my friend. The Ark of the Covenant in the holy place, the most holy place was symbolic of the throne of God, and there was never a priest who thought for a moment to grab a chair, go in, and sit down it would have been his ultimate destruction to have done so. But when Christ dies on the cross, what is one of the symbols that this is something extraordinary, but that the veil of the temple is absolutely split top to bottom. Access to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is a superior and character priest. He is further superior as an offering he offers up himself. He talks there about high priests offering gifts and sacrifices. This priest also offered. What does he offer himself? Now the writer of Hebrews will work this out more fully in chapters 9 and 10. This is the place for us to look backwards, though, and think for a moment biblically. How does this new covenant come about? How is it that we have a man in heaven at the right hand of God? It is by the blood of his own life. If you look back in the Old Testament, if you look at the covenant with Noah, Genesis 8, verse 20, 
Noah built an altar that the Lord took some of the, every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground because of man, for in the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done while the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And then in chapter 9, verse 9, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Sacrifice covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, chapter 15 of Genesis. Abraham is held up all the time as an example of faith, right? Everybody speaks of the faith of Abraham. You find it in the scriptures. But at one point in Genesis 15, 8, Abraham says, Oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He's talking about the land. He said to him, is what the Lord tells him to do. Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other. He didn't cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham, Abram drove them away. Now listen to this. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they'll come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. Covenant sacrifice together the mosaic covenant exodus 24 moses has the young men sacrifice bulls on the altars it says in verse 6 exodus 24 moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that God has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. How'd that work out, by the way? Mm. And Moses took the blood, threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. You remember what we read earlier? Three of the gospel accounts and one account in the epistles where Jesus says, as he institutes the Lord's Supper, as it's looking back at Passover, he says, this blood, this cup, is the blood of the new covenant. My blood in the new covenant. Christ is not only priest, he is sacrifice. 
As all the other covenants are established by a sacrifice, so is the new covenant. It is not only that Christ is superior then in character, in his offering, but in location. Our high priest serves in the reality that Moses' priests and offerings pointed. Our high priest is in heaven. He doesn't have to offer his blood again. He's offered it once for all time. He doesn't have to stand there and convince the Father to be nice to us, to show kindness to us, or not to strike us down when we sin. His very presence in heaven is his intercession. The hymn we sing, those wounds yet visible above, he who was raised from the dead even in his glorified state, still bears in his body the marks of the nails and of the spear. His presence glorified in heaven is the intercession that he has died for the sake of his people. My friends, this is the sacrifice for your sins. Hear the glory of this. Some of you are still trying to figure out how to make God like you. How to make God pay attention to you. How to make sure God isn't angry with you. And you're looking in the wrong place. Stop looking at you. That never turns out well. It either lands you in self-righteousness about how good you are compared to other people. Oh, God have mercy. Or it will make you absolutely despair. And you'll never have any comfort. Look to the great high priest. Look to Jesus. The superiority of Christ's priesthood. The superiority of Christ's covenant. His ministry is more excellent because the covenant he mediates is better. The emphasis here in the last part of chapter 8 of Hebrews, verses 7 to 13, the emphasis is twofold. The inadequacy and obsolescence of the Mosaic covenant and the superiority and unending future of the new covenant. The new covenant is superior because it has better promises. What are the better promises? Well, you look at verse 6. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent as the uh, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises what's the better promises well look what he said i'm not going to make it like the old covenant was well, the old covenant do this do this do this do this don't do this don't do this don't do this here's the sacrificial system and all of god's people there at the foot of the mountain what did they say we'll do it yay us And what do they do almost immediately? Fail. And fail. And fail. And fail. And oh, by the way, fail. Repeatedly. Failure. The new covenant makes promises first. The law internalized. Verse 10. The covenant I'll make with the house of Israel in those days declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. The law he puts in our hearts 
is not merely a repetition of the Mosaic legislation, but rather they are reflective of the new covenant, new laws for a new covenant. After all, the high priest, the mediator of the new covenant, is not selected according to the Mosaic covenant. Jesus is not part of the Levitical tribe. He is not a descendant that could be a priest. He's part of the tribe of Judah. Yet what he does is greater than what came under Moses and the Levitical covenant. Under the promises of the new covenant, we are connected to his lordship as both lawgiver and high priest. Listen to what Tom Schreiner says here. No one is truly a new covenant member, who, no one who is truly a new covenant member will ever fall away. And all new covenant members are regenerate. So if someone doesn't know the Lord, then by definition, they're not members of the new covenant. The text is clear here. All members of the new covenant from the greatest to the least know the Lord. They have been given something new. He has put the law in them, his commands. There's a change. The spirit of God dwells in us. I chuckle when I hear people say, well, you know, talk to each other. What should I do? Well, just listen to your heart. Don't do that. Illustrate it this way, Dr. Christian Menard, the first surgeon to ever do a heart transplant, impulsively asked one of his patients, Dr. Philip Blayberg, would you like to see your old heart? So at 8 p.m. the subsequent evening, the men stood in the room of the hospital in Johannesburg, South Africa. Dr. Bernard went up to a cupboard, took down a glass container, handed it to Dr. Blayberg. Inside that container was Blayberg's old heart. For a moment, he stood there in stunned silence, the first man in history ever to hold his own heart in his own hands. Finally, he spoke, and for 10 minutes, he asked Dr. Bernard the technical questions. Then he turned to take a final look at the contents of the glass container and said, so this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. He handed it back, turned away, left it behind. My friends, here's the reality. When Christ comes, the old heart is changed. A new heart is given. And that new heart is engraved obedience to the Lord. You long to do what He calls you to do. The relationship is made eternal. They shall all know me. This is what Paul's talking about in Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. But we say, well, there's still sin. What do I do about my sin? What about all of my sin? The solution for sin is realize. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I think you ought to glory in divine amnesia. The fact that God will forget your sin. So what's becoming of then of this old covenant, the Mosaic covenant? It was inadequate for it can only command, it cannot enable you could actually be under the old covenant without truly being regenerate. 
And because of our sin, the Mosaic Covenant could not fulfill its purpose. The Mosaic is being replaced. At the time of the writing of Hebrews, it's being replaced by the New Covenant. It's growing old and is ready to vanish away. It, no, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care. It's just that we relate to Him on different terms now. Now some of you say, well, what do I do with the Old Testament? Read your Old Testament. Love your Old Testament. Memorize your Old Testament. It is still the Word of God. It's just not the terms of the covenant and how we relate to God. Those terms are set under the new covenant. You see, the, the things we should think about here, friends, the old covenant could only command and demand. The new covenant inscribes the commands on the heart of God's people. The old covenant allowed for members who were not truly converted, but merely marked out by observance as part of a covenant. The new covenant people are truly regenerate. This helps define us as a congregation and baptistic understanding. We insist on credo-baptism. That is, until you can say yourself, I believe, we will not baptize you. You must come to saving faith. Then you can be properly baptized. Now that's, let me bring this to a close with a couple of applications. What ethic now drives the believer? If we're not under the Mosaic Code, if we find that three-part distinction of civil law, ceremonial law, and moral law unhelpful, how are we supposed to live? Are you guys a bunch of antinomians? Now, some of you say, that's, that's an interesting word. Anti against nomos law. Does it mean that we are antinomians? We don't believe in being obedient. Not at all. We hear and heed the commands of Christ. For the New Testament says, do, my friend, you are obligated to do. And it is, in essence, nothing more than a restatement of much of the Mosaic law. But it comes to us not through Moses, but through Christ. How's Jesus talk about it? John 14, 15. If you love me, what will you do? You'll keep my commandments. Hmm. How about John 13, 34? A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So in light of those statements, this is how we're told to live. When Paul speaks of the Macedonians' practice of giving, and he's writing to the Corinthian church, he doesn't emphasize a percentage of giving. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Wow. Now you hear that coupling there? Usually you don't think about these things going together. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they, according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, gave not as we expected, but gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. 
He goes on to exhort the Corinthians, see that you excel in this act of grace as well. And he concludes in this way, for we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The focus becomes Jesus. When Paul talks to husbands in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives, and here's the list of things to do. Here's your checklist, guys. I'm so glad he didn't because somebody would have made an app for that. What does he say? Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Brothers and sisters, the new covenant begins with not an external demand, but an internal and eternal change so that when the command comes, there's an echoing response of willingness within. Now, I'm, I, you say, well, I don't always want to obey. I know that. That's your flesh still rising up within you, and that's part of the battle, right? I don't about you. Well, I do. I, I should stop saying it that way. I know this as well as I know it about myself. I battle selfishness all the time. I battle being me all the time. The author of Hebrews is saying, listen to Ligon Dunyon, Jesus on Calvary in one time and one place for all time faced and quenched the unmitigated wrath of God so that all who trust in him in all times, both before he lived and after, are forgiven their sins because he himself bore their penalty. It's quite stunning. Christian, do you understand this? When you fail, Jesus has died. When you stumble, Christ has already paid for it. When you struggle, he is already for you. He doesn't love you more when you get it right. Because he doesn't love you less when you get it wrong. His love is not anchored in your performance. I know I've done this, but I cannot help it. This is so encouraging, and I would close with this. Consider with me as we end two visions. And I think about Jeremiah and all that he heard. What did it have to do in Jeremiah's heart to hear the promise there in Jeremiah 31? that a day was coming when people wouldn't behave that way anymore, when there wouldn't be this kind of disobedience. But I'd have you consider two visions, just for a moment. Both include a throne and seraphim and an overwhelmed witness. Isaiah 6, Revelation 5. Remember, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Remember Isaiah's response? And then on Patmos, that desiccated, horrid place, 
John sees heaven and one on the throne. Both the visitors, if you will, the witnesses are overwhelmed. But hear the difference. What is the distinction between the two? Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell with a people of unclean lips. And an angel takes a coal from the altar, the place of sacrifice, and he touches Isaiah's lips and says, your sin is purged. But when John is undone and he's weeping because no one's found that's worthy to open the scroll, what is he told? Stop your weeping. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. And when he lifts his eyes, a lamb, as though it had been slain, takes the scroll from the hand of him who sits upon the throne. His sin paid for, not by a single act in a single moment for a single person, rather his sin, your sin, my sin, the sin of every child of God atoned for. On a hill outside the city of Jerusalem when the great king cried, it is finished. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne of the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Oh, Christian. Fall down and worship. The new covenant is enacted. I don't have to tell you to know the Lord. If you're His, you know Him. From the least little old saint who just barely got inside. Couldn't find a book of the Bible to save their very life right now. Doesn't know a verse. Doesn't know anything except... I believe in Jesus. To the one who knows it all, done it all, led, whatever. From the least to the greatest, they shall all know me. This, my friend, is the glorious salvation 
of the new covenant. Let's pray.